Season 4, Episode 7 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarovsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. In this episode, we'll be talking all about albatrosses. I chat to Andrew Angel, the Albatross Task Force Manager. We talk about what makes this group of birds so special, with Andrea sharing some stories of special encounters she's had while observing them, as well as the work that the Albatross Task Force is doing. We encourage you to support the important what they're doing by visiting their website and making a donation. You can find out more about them on the BirdLife South Africa website, www.birdlife.org.za. Please take some time to visit our online store on our website. We sell optics, books, art, and a whole lot more, all to help you as a birder. If you need further assistance about products or anything else around the birding life, drop us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com, and we will get back to you. So, let's get into this week's episode. Okay, Andrea, it's great to have a chat to you on the Birding Life podcast. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Adam. It's great to be on your show. And um, yeah, it's great to be talking to you. So I've heard so much about the Albatross Task Force. And after going on the Flock to Marion cruise at the beginning of this year, I'm even more excited about albatrosses. But before we talk about albatrosses and the Albatross Task Force, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I don't know if many of you know, but I'm, I'm originally from Chile, so that's where I was born. And uh, due to various circumstances, I ended up living in several parts of the world. So I've lived a bit in Europe and I spent some years growing up in, in Mozambique and uh, before ending up back in Chile again and doing my biology, um, my biology undergrad. But it was always the lure of, um, you know, coming back to Africa after having lived in Mozambique. And so it when I was offered a, a master's in, in conservation biology at UCT, I jumped at it. And getting to Cape Town is it was just, it's such a beautiful place. And I've never looked back really. And while I've been back home, sort of, uh, I think South Africa has become my home. I've lived here since 2001 on and off. And I'm more South African in many respects than I'm anything else now. But um, yeah, my roots are still, some of them are still in Chile and I, I still hold on to my my native language, Spanish, and enjoy that. So yeah, but I've been a conservation biologist for, I don't know, close to 20 years now. So that is, um, in summary, my my life. Obviously, you're involved in bird conservation, and I've, I, I'm always interested to know this. I mean, I've chatted to uh, Melissa Whitecross and that before, and you know, there's. I've always said birds aren't always seen as the the sexiest of the conservation conservation project. You know, there's people always want to save leopards and rhinos and all those things. You know, what was the spark that uh, you know planted the seed that grew the love of birds in your life? I'd never really looked at birds until after I finished my master's. And I think that was when when I looked at birds for the first time. And while it wasn't seabirds then, I was drawn to, to land birds and looking for, I did a project looking for nests in the highlands of Venezuela in the misty forests. And, and that's when you, that inquisitive uh, sort of nature of birds and that very 
mystical and mysterious aspect of them when you're looking for looking for them and you can't find them and they sort of peek out of behind trees or leaves and and you you just have to spot them was and and the bird watching and that's when I really got into bird watching and and got into that identification of them and that the diversity of birds was just mind-blowing at the time. And I think that that got me into it. But if I really have to say my love for birds started when I saw my first albatross, I think, in when I went primarily when I was working on Gough Island and and got, got to see these massive albatrosses, the Tristan albatross. It was just the, the majestic, these absolutely majestic birds that are – they don't see you. You're on an island. They don't really pay much much attention to you, and they go about their lives. And but they fill the space. Arriving on Gough only and and having five different species of of albatross on the island, and hearing them and seeing them every day, just it was just a privilege and an, an absolutely incredible experience to to be around them. So albatrosses for me are my something that I'm really drawn to, birds that I really care for and, uh, and admire. Uh, I've, I've always been, there were a couple of instances on, on Gough when we got to experience close-up with albatrosses. I don't know if many people know about Gough, but there's mice on Gough and that's one of the threats that the albatrosses face. And we had a chick that had been attacked by, by mice and had died and, uh, and the parents came back to feed it as they do every two or three days. And this this albatross female just came up to this to this lifeless chick and started sort of poking at it, trying trying to get it to react, and it and it wouldn't react. And we stayed watching watching this albatross do this, and it took it a while, about fifteen minutes or something, to of insistent and persistent sort of poking at this chick and walking around and calling before it finally said, "Okay, well, I'm not getting any reaction here." And then as like has it or not, the male arrived, which is not, it's very unusual for both parents to be together at the nest at the same time when the chick is quite big, they take turns. And and then this male came and the female goes up to the male and they start this sort of bill touching and grooming uh, of each other, This the, the greeting that they have. And then the male immediately goes for the chick and says, okay, you know, why not at the nest, you could almost hear them speak. And and this male took another 20, 15 minutes to convince itself that this chick was was dead, basically, that there was they, they couldn't get any reaction to it. And and the female kept going back to the male, kind of calling him aside and and you know, leave this chick. It, it's 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 not gonna it's it's dead. And uh, and eventually they both leave the nest a little bit, uh, they go away a bit and start grooming each other. And it was such an incredibly sort of touching and sad moment to to see them finally letting go of this of this lifeless uh, this lifeless chick that they've spent months carrying first as an as a as an egg, but also then feeding and coming to feed uh, every two or three days. And and I think that kind of showed shows a side of these birds. They're incredible care as parents and their that sort of dedication where everything is this chick that is all that matters to them it was incredibly incredibly touching moment i must say andrew you know we speak a lot about different species on on the podcast but you know albatrosses are one of the the only species that when i get a guest on who speaks about them i always 
get goosebumps. It's one of these birds. I remember when I had a chat to Peter Harrison about albatrosses. It's almost there's something there's something magical about them. And for those that went on the flock to Marion cruise, I mean, people would uh, you know to go out there where I can remember that day, the albatross day, when we were close to Marion, and there were hundreds of these albatrosses flying around us, and it was just the most awesome birding experience I've ever had. And I think there's there's just something almost magical about it. I can almost see why, you know, there's all these <laughs> folklore stories about them because there's something there's something almost magical, mystical about them. They, they, they really are a special species. They are. They are. I think there's, you know, just being in their presence, I think is what, what it, you make you feel small. You feel humbled. And uh, having sitting on an island where there's nothing around for miles and suddenly this massive creature just flies overhead and all you hear is this sort of whoosh of the wings and and it's it's this huge huge giant that is that then lands quite clumsily so it, it's it's humbling because they're so majestic in the air but then when they land they absolutely make you laugh because they tumble and they can't they can't really stand on their feet properly and they waddle along so then they become sort of these sort of vulnerable things and yet in the air there are these incredibly powerful beings that can withstand all these winds and the oceans and nothing nothing sort of you know defeats them and and yet on land there can be these waddling creatures that are still impressive and still incredible but but you you get this duality from them and that is a that is a very and other animals don't necessarily do that I think it's it's being able to see kind of through a personality or being able to see that that sort of fun and ridicule thing about them but at the same time there's incredible you can only admire them for their strength and from their resilience and what they have to confront that that you just you literally just humbled uh, in front of an albatross. I mean, they're also huge. <laughs> that that's another thing. They're just this in very very big big birds. And and when they are with their chicks, the tenderness, you know, this that beak could you know tear your hand away or rip it quite to shreds if they wanted to. And yet, with the same beak, they are grooming this chick. They are looking after it. They they treat it with such care that you see real it's almost like real love in 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 their behavior and it's anthropomorphizing it's making them but it's it's the way also we connect with things and when we see these things we really connect so an albatross really wakes something in you when you are close to them and when you see them out in their in their environment that you it's it's difficult to to look back and it's difficult to find something else that really matches it i I've, i haven't really found anything that compares to what an albatross does to you so i'm going to ask other questions along the way about albatrosses so those who want to know more about albatrosses keep listening but i want to i want to ask you nice and early on because one of my biggest memories was a a talk that Peter Harrison's did where he spoke about and he spoke about the breeding habits of these albatrosses and it's really absolutely fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the breeding habits of the of the albatross. So so there's two major major groups within the albatrosses. So some of the the larger the, the big albatrosses, and then you've got the the smaller ones, the mollymorks, as they as they're called. And within the bigger ones, all of them, I mean all um petrels and albatrosses in general, they only lay one egg. And that's something that's quite important. It's quite significant because they don't breed 
they don't have a they don't breed a lot basically they their capacity to regenerate themselves is quite diminished by the fact that they can only lay an egg but on top of that the bigger ones the larger albatrosses such as the wandering albatrosses and royal albatrosses they can only lay one egg every two years so that again puts puts quite a you know reduced ability for them to reproduce and for them to to have chicks and on and if and further to that most of these albatrosses don't start breeding before they're 10 to 8 years of age so before that no breeding occurs they fledge from an island they don't actually touch land within in in those first 5 to 8 years they never come back to land and then when they do they come back uh, and sort of circle the islands maybe land and start looking for a mate and they can in this in this looking for a mate take another 2 or 3 years to find before they find a suitable mate, someone that they said, okay, well, let's now start making a nest together. And so an albatross really has to be mature before it it even starts to reproduce. And that is, and that sets them back compared to other species and other, even other birds and, and many of the mammals who within a year or two are, are producing chicks or, or, you know, a litter. Albatrosses don't. And that means that they they have a high risk of if anything happens in those ten years, they basically lose that opportunity. They will never breed if they haven't bred already. And then the whole time, uh, the bigger albatrosses, for instance, the the Tristan albatross or the wandering albatross, they only lay an egg every two years, and they take up to thirteen months before they can fledge a chick. So it's two months of incubating, and and then they. The, the growing of this chick, I mean, the rearing of this chick and bringing food, it takes both parents. So again, if one of the parents is, dies for whatever reason or doesn't come back, that chick will die because it can't sustain, one parent can't sustain its growth. It needs both parents to feed it. And the parent, while it's it has a chick, can do can travel up to 10,000 kilometers to bring one meal one squid or or squid worth of, of food to this chick. So the the efforts, the lengths that these albatrosses go to in order to raise a chick are phenomenal. They're absolutely amazing. And you can have a, an adult circling the the solar, you know, the Southern Ocean looking for food so that it can bring so that it can feed this chick. And the chick grows. It it's left alone on its nest after it's hatched for they, the parents are there looking after it uh, for about a month or so, and then they slowly start to leave it alone. So there you have this little white fluff ball in the middle of nothing because they, some of these albatrosses, they make their nest, some in colonies and quite close together, but the wandering will, you know, there'll be six or seven meters between nests easily, and it depends on how pop, how densely populated the island is. So they might not be seeing anyone, any other chicks. And, and there they are alone in the middle of nowhere where exposed to the elements and be waiting for the parents to come and feed them. And they go like that for several months until they grow large enough, bigger almost than the parent in all their fluff, before they then start changing and molting into their, into their adult uh, feathers. And eventually the parents stop coming and they don't, they don't get fed and the, and the bird flies off. And once it flies off, it doesn't touch land again for five to eight years. And that is... You know, it's it's an incredible 
story and an incredible breeding uh, breeding habitat, but it also makes them incredibly vulnerable to any threats. As an adult, as youngsters, it's, they're, they're just very, very threatened by anything that happens out there that is, that is um, you know, that can threaten their lives. Any, of any of the parents and then of the of the juvenile that then never gets to breed basically so you've used this this the words big you're saying you know the bigger albatrosses and all that kind of thing like on on the flock to marion cruise i got to experience the size of these birds they've got enormous wingspans and when i've told people about the size of their wingspans people can't even you, you can't fathom them. it's you know tell us about the wingspan of the albatross. Yeah, they are they are tremendous. They, I mean, if one can, you know, it's a three point. So the largest one, the wandering albatross, has a three point five meter wingspan, and so it's basically I'm I'm one point you know one point six. So it's almost like twice me, uh, and that you know, across uh, the wings. I rally flat and then uh, this albatross, I'm maybe just a little bit bigger twice than, you know, twice my length. But it's, so they are enormous. And I didn't think it's, I think it's difficult to to imagine it and, and unless you see it, unless you see it. Because everyone's like, okay, you know, yeah, it's a big bird. Yeah, but when you see them, when you see this massive bird coming towards you, 3.5 meter wingspan, that is just it's just enormous, and 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 even when you when they just stand, an albatross stands an easy, a hard, more than half a meter it will be 60, 80 uh, centimeters off the ground, and, and it will stand. So even that coming up to an albatross, you're coming up to a big bird with a massive beak, the length of a you know of a hand easily, this massive massive beak, and and when they spread out their wings, they just Enormous. They're just huge birds. Impressive. Probably could have should have asked this earlier on, but what are some of the albatross species that are found off the southern African of the South African Southern African coast? We've got quite a few, actually. It's it's uh, we've got a high diversity. So one of the most that everyone looks for, obviously, we have both the wandering and the Tristan albatross that that come here. We can also regularly see if you go out on a pelagic trip, which I would recommend anyone do, particularly out of Cape Town. It's absolutely an amazing experience. The the southern and the northern royal albatross are here regularly. Then it's the smaller ones, the sooty. The black-browed albatross is very, very common. The shy albatross, and uh, and then you've got the Atlantic and Indian yellownoses, which are also very common here. So, so all in all, we've got one, two, five, seven albatross species that you can see quite regularly off off the coast of um, off the coast of Cape Town. Occasionally, you can see as a rarity maybe a grey-headed albatross, but so as a rare and. Um, yeah, so so those those are those are the species that you will see here. So commonly, there's seven or eight nine species that you will see off the coast of Cape Town. Yeah, one of the only challenges is I'm a uh, staying KZN, and to see albatrosses from the KZN coast is a lot more difficult from from Cape Town. It is, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, I yeah, come down to Cape Town and and get on a pelagic. Although I'm sure you have Adam, haven't you? I haven't done Cape Town yet. I've done one off of I've done two off of Durban. Okay, but 
I think for anyone that's listening, if you can do a pelagic trip, it's well worth it. So pelagic trip is, just for the sake of the listeners, is basically these day trips out of Durban. I think they also do them out of, or there's other places they do them for, and of Cape Town, and there's a few other places. But if you can do a pelagic trip and get to see these albatrosses up close, it's something special. Yeah, and also you won't just see albatrosses. I mean, you'll see some of the big petrel species as well. We've got often you'll definitely see giant petrels, so it might be the southern or the northern. But you'll also see great wind petrel, white wind petrels are very very common. Uh, the cape or the what used to be the the pintado petrel, I still like to call it pintado petrel just because it's so beautiful. And pintado means painted in Spanish, so it's it's um, it's just very. A good name, I think. But Cory shearwaters, city shearwaters, the great shearwaters, those are birds that you will also commonly see behind the, particularly behind the trawlers. I mean, that's what you want to, you want to find a trawler. And then as these trawlers are fishing and bringing up the nets or whatever, all of these birds, they come on cue, basically. As soon as that trawler winch starts up, the birds are there. It's quite an amazing spectacle. Really incredible. I think it's, one of a kind is one of as 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 big as going on a shark trip or any of these sort of nature spectacles. Being on a pelagic trip off Cape Town is is really really um, an experience to be had. So just a funny story. I've the sardine runners just started up in KZN. So I've been going down to the beach and waiting for the right conditions and popping my scope up and looking for seabirds. And you know they're quite far out. Waiting for the that um, hasn't been windy, so I've been waiting for the wind to blow them in a bit. But I go like two, three times a week and I just sit for an hour, take my golden retriever and she walks around in front of me and I just wait for seabirds. And I've seen Cape Gannett flying past, but really nothing else. The other day, a guy on Sunday, a guy sits in his flat and he gets a picture of a, a white and petrol just turning me this <gasps> off, off the wow. coast. I'm like, come on, dude. Wow. <laughs> and you went there. <laughs> so, so just a question I get asked all the time. These albatrosses fly, you know, miles and miles kilometers and kilometers out to sea and you know they don't see land for many many years so what about sleeping and resting that's what people always ask me how do they sleep and rest they actually albatrosses have this amazing they've got the joint like what would be sort of our elbow um that they can just lock so they can just lock this their wings basically to stay outright and so they don't need to flap them and in really good amazing Wednesday the they, albatrosses barely flap their wings they glide they have this incredible aerodynamic uh, ability to to the to their flight and uh, and they sleep on the wing is they can do that and they expend less energy resting like that sleeping on the wing than they would do sitting in water so a lot of people say yeah but why don't they just sit in water well the, the, they they difficult for them then to regulate their temperature because the water is cold and they would lose a lot of heat. Whereas when they're flying, they're not constantly losing the heat in that way. And they are much more effective metabolically flying than they are just sitting in the water. Uh, so they wouldn't, they can, they can maybe rest uh, f- uh, depending on the circumstances because if, they, if, there's a, if there's no wind, then Flying is takes a lot more effort, and then they would have to be in the water. But if there's strong winds, they can just glide. They don't really use a lot of energy, and they and they can sleep on the wing, literally. So we've spoken about how amazing these birds are, but there's real conservation challenges around the species. So what is the conservation status of albatross? Most of them are endangered, critically endangered, vulnerable, most of them. 
most of the species are are in some way uh, threatened, uh, near threatened. There's only one now, the the black-browed albatross, which has been uh, brought down to to least concern. Some of the populations are recovering off the Falklands and and uh, yeah, and and Chile, but in other places, the black-browed albatrosses are still in threatened and still the populations are not coming back but most of them are, are in some degree threatened or vulnerable of all, of all of the 22 species so there's different threats uh, most of them are related to fisheries again most of the species are threatened by some kind of uh, fishing activity or um, island invasives uh, that is a, that's also one of the one of the bigger threats and if there's a couple of species that are threatened but more by climate change so there's inundation or some in in their on their islands so that's that's a couple of species but all of them are facing some kind of threat. We need to protect them, basically. There's no, and most of them are anthropological threats, things that we can do something about. Well, climate change we could, but it's, it's a bigger picture there. And I can imagine one of the challenges with the work that you guys are doing, we'll talk about the Albatross Task Force in a moment, but one of the big challenges is this disconnect because a lot of our listeners would have never seen an albatross and there's almost, it's a lot, it's a lot harder to get people to care about something that they've that there's no connection to. Yes, it is. I can I can speak my talk myself horse and talk to people about how amazing albatrosses are, but and you can show as many pictures as you want. But it's a very very different thing if if you haven't if you're not able to experience it. So we I mean one of the things that that I we do use that that we have we've got a, a stuffed albatross. Uh, it came off. Um, of a longliner, so it was killed on a longliner, and we managed to to get it uh, to get it off and have it properly curated. And when I bring out, we call him Bob. When I bring him out, it's you know then particularly younger children they will look at this and they will really get a sense, even though it's not the three point five meters. Uh, I mean the whole processing just kind of shrinks them a bit. It's not as big, but still it's. It's an impressive bird, and it's only then that people can really say, "Oh, okay, now I can understand. You know, I can relate some of that, uh, some of what you're talking about." But still, it's not a species that someone will see regularly. It's not like going out to the coast. Oh, there's a seagull, or you know, a gannet, even or cormorants. It's a very, very elusive and and species you have to be out at sea often under difficult conditions to be able to see them i mean for everyone who came on flock it's a huge huge privilege to to have been able to get that close to marion and to be able to have all of these birds uh, basically there at, at almost at arm's length at, at, at times it was it was absolutely an incredible experience and until you see that until you do that you can't really connect and it's it is it is a challenge. It is a huge challenge to connect to people like that uh, when when you can't show them, when you can't take them on a safari and show them a lion or take them to a zoo and, and you know show them a giraffe. You just it, how do you how do you get through? So yes, it is a challenge, and I think the only way for us to bridge that a bit is through these props and and pictures and maybe videos so videos becoming a bit more accessible and you can show show videos sometimes to people and I think it's a very also conveying a message in a very personal way I find that it's also about how you talk about something and how you 
your own passion sort of comes through, hopefully, and, and people can relate to that. But it is a challenge. And the other thing I can imagine would be a huge challenge is, is obviously, you know, these fisheries and these fishing boats are, you know, actually providing food for people and, the you know, the population's growing and, um, you know, we, you just need to go to the, <laughs> the food aisle. There's a whole lot of fish products down there. A lot of those fish products we, we're buying – they might be they might be having a negative impact on the the on on albatrosses and 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 various seabirds. They are unfortunately, and I think you know just to talk a little bit about the about the threat. So I've mentioned it briefly, but essentially albatrosses and many of our of the petrels that that come to our oceans they come because there's a huge food source here. So there's a couple of there's a few focal points in the southern ocean where birds go to forage off Brazil, off the coast of Chile and Uruguay, uh, here in South Africa and up uh, up towards Namibia, uh, are places where you have upwellings upwelling areas so that the, the sea is very nutrient rich which means that there's a lot of fish and fish is something that the birds uh, squid and fish is something that albatrosses want so they come here and eat but like where you find lots of fish you'll also find lots of fishermen so one of the biggest threats that albatrosses and, and these kinds of seabirds face is interaction with fishing gear and it can be uh, with a hook that has bait and they're, they're attracted to the bait or in the case of our trawl fisheries which are dragging a net it's the cables that hold the net that they collide into and can break a wing or can get damaged in some way and, and, and they drown as a result of colliding with these cables so, so f interaction with fishing gear in whatever shape or form it could be nets, we don't have a lot of nets here like in, in gill nets but that is a threat elsewhere um, uh, that is one of the biggest threats to to albatrosses and petrels, and equally big, and it depends. It's a matter of how you measure it. Is uh, invasive species on islands? So I've I mentioned it briefly on Gough, It is the mice that are a threat, and you would say, yeah, but a mice is like this minute little thing. How can it be a threat to an albatross? But they are. Because albatrosses and all seabirds on that breed on island, they don't see anything on land as a threat. So you can walk right up to a bird and it will just sit there looking at you and it might sort of sort of pick his bill at you and just kind of want to wave you away, but it won't do anything. It won't know what you are and and won't know what to do with you. So when you bring a species that has never hasn't evolved on an island and they don't recognize it, the birds basically don't know what to do. And these mice crawl over all over these birds and the chicks in particular and can essentially and it's quite gruesome nibble their way and basically start to eat them alive and the birds don't know what's happening to them uh, so and that but you can also have cats for instance they will predate they will physically pounce on a bird and eat it and so you know kill it so invasive species on islands are a huge threat to seabirds in general albatrosses as well they 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 will fall into that category, burrowing petrels, for instance, uh, birds that burrow. So those are the two main threats, is interaction with fishing gear and invasive species on islands. And here off the coast, of our coast, what we are dealing with is the threats of interactions with, with fishing gear and, and the threat that that poses for them because they come here and eat. So we've got about 25 different seabird species that come to forage in, in our seas from elsewhere. That's not counting the penguins and the gannets and local birds. That's counting just birds that come off from elsewhere. 
and they and they are vulnerable to to fishing, to interacting with fishing gear. So yes, it is a it is quite a dilemma to then what do you do? You know, do you stop eating fish or what is the response to that? And that's part of the work that that we do is trying to mitigate the the threats to the seabirds from interacting with fishing gear. And that's the task. That's what the Albert's Task Force does. So I see three other projects that you guys are involved in. You've spoken about some of the challenges, and I love the fact that for each of those challenges, there's there's there's, there's solutions that you're looking for. And I love the fact also. Let me just say that a lot of these solutions are very cost effective, which is very, which is very important. Three of the projects I saw that you guys are involved in is the Hook Pod project, the Inshore Trawl project, and the Compliance Device project. Tell us a little bit about these 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 three projects. So one of the things, you know, what we're trying to do at the, the Alpha Task Force, the ATF, is to prevent birds from getting either hooked or entangled in gear or colliding with these trawl cables. Uh, th- those, that's the main, the main objective. That's the first main objective. How do you prevent the, these birds dying, basically, with, with Seabird bycatch is, is the sort of the term that we use. And the hook pod is an incredible nifty device that is able to, uh, it's difficult without pictures, but if you can imagine like this pod that has a little hole in it and you can clip or put a uh, slide the, the hook, the barb end of the hook into this little pod so that it encases the barb of the hook completely. And then you can throw your gear out. So you can still bait the hook, encase this barb of, of the hook into this pod, and then throw your, your long line out, your hooked line out. And then this pod sinks to a set depth. It could be 20 meters, 10 meters. And then it's a pressure release mechanism that activates this pod and it opens up. So it, it, it just kind of pops open and it releases that baited hook into the water. But by then, it's sunk away from the diving depths of most of the, all of the albatrosses, because albatross don't really dive. They they will, you know, dip their head into the water, but they don't dive. But some of the, the shear waters can dive to 20 meters, 10 meters easily. But they will have sunk beyond the diving depths of these birds and out of reach for them. So there's no ways that they can then get hooked or grab, you know, access this bait and 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 get hooked. If, if the hook doesn't sink fast enough, but it's still encased in this hook part, it doesn't matter because they can still take the bait if they can, but they won't get hooked, which is one of the biggest, one of the main challenges with all of these long liners. Because a long liner will set 18,000 to 3,000 hooks in the water at a time, one vessel, one set. And you can think that we have you know, hundreds of vessels, well, thousands in the oceans, if not more. So that's a lot of hooks in the water, a lot of baited hooks and very attractive bait. So that is that is one that's what the hook part does. And if and if the hooks has been around for several years, but one of the issues with it is that it is something that you put directly onto the gear, which is always a tricky thing for fishermen. They, you know, they they'll be they don't even want anything on the gear. They don't want they'll be iffy about what type of lure you use and and definitely no weights or anything. So to put something on the gear takes quite a lot of convincing. But if we could get all of longline fisheries to take up the hook part, we would have solved birds getting caught, caught in hooks. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of birds getting hooked in this way every year in, in the Southern Ocean alone. So it's, it's, 
it is a solution. It is a, it is a silver bullet solution because you put the hook point on and the birds won't get caught. But it's, it's, it takes a while to convince a fisherman to start using them. And also at the moment, until there's more wholesale of them, it's more widespread, it's quite pricey to buy the hook pods. You don't lose them because the hook pod stays attached to the branch line, to the to the line. So when you haul, the you just close the hook pod again and it's ready to be baited, so to speak, with another with another hook and be set again. So it's a very, very effective and hardy uh, device that people working with fishermen came up with many years ago. The inshore trawl project is again trying to sort out the the mitigation uh, issues. So trying to get uh, what we call bird scaring lines to get taken up. And bird scaring lines, what they do is basically they form this wall, these two lines with streamers hanging off them that protect the cables off, uh, so that the birds don't come in contact with the trawl cables and get injured as they collide with them. And Getting bird scaring lines out in the inshore, in the inshore has been problematic because the fishermen say, okay, well, we don't see a lot of birds. Like, what's the point of this? You know, we don't need this. And yet we know that they do, they do collide with the cables. So there it's a matter of, you know, incentivizing. How can you incentivize the fishermen to do it? Even if they don't want to, well, can you give them something? And with the inshore project in particular, one of the things that they really struggle to, to fund is an observer program. They, they're required to take observers to measure their bycatch and to look at all sorts of things, but it's difficult for them. They're small vessels. They, they, they struggle to take them on. So one of the things that we helping them with is to fund part of their observer program. So they let us trial out these, these bird scaring lines on their vessels and make sure that we can attach them and they can use them effectively and easily in exchange for us funding some of, through the project, part of their observer program. And that gives you, you know, it got us on the table. You know, it meant that we could talk. We could sit down, talk about what the advantages are, what we need to do, and they are gaining something from it. So there's, there's always a negotiation. In everything, even with the hookpot project, there's a negotiation. What are we getting in exchange? Why do we need to do this? What in what way does that benefit us? And then, but then there's always the challenge. Okay, so once you're out at sea, now what? What happens? What what do you do? So you, you've gotten them, you convince them, okay, these things work, you've got the mitigation measures, but are they using them? How can you make sure that they're using them? And that's where what the compliance device, uh, this compliance device project is about. So it's a Again, a little thing that um, it was actually a fisheries observer that that came up with the idea, and it's a it's a tension device. So it it senses the pull, it records the pull of the bird scaring line. So you attach it to the bird scaring line and to the vessel, and then every time the bird scaring line is thrown out and deployed, this tension device records that, and it can and it can tell that the bird scaring line is out because there's a there's a pull of the bird scaring line that then gets recorded. And if you then compare that to the logbook data that each vessel needs to carry, which says, okay, we set our net at X time, you can look at the tension uh, device with uh, which gives out the date and the time that the tension started fluctuating because the bird scan line was out. And you can say, okay, well, they were deploying the bird scan line at the same time that they were set putting out the net. And that's a, a very easy way of inf in ensuring that the vessels are compliant, that they're not saying, ah, there's an observer on board. Okay, let's put the bird scan lines, but rest of the time we can't be bothered. If we put those little devices on, there's 100% observer coverage. And we can check whether they were compliant. And we can also go back and say, okay, 
you know, maybe you weren't compliant. Why? And that's where the dialogue starts and that's where the negotiation starts and that's a big part of what we do. So the ATF works on the ground. We work together with the fishermen, we go out to sea with the fishermen, but we also work with government and with legislation and a lot of a lot of our work is advocacy and with the, and with other organizations to ensure that there is on the ground understanding of what the fishermen needs, what what will make their operations easier and and more how we can put our mitigations out there without interfering with fishing operations and that they are cheap and affordable and reliable and efficient. And at the same time, how can we work with government to ensure that there is some sort of compliance obligation, some policy out there, some legislation that, you know, tells the fishermen, okay, you actually have to use this. So you're working at a top level and you're working at on the ground with the fishermen as well. And that's, it's, it requires a lot of a lot of work. Uh, we are currently a very very small team. There's only two of us uh, working all of these angles. But if you don't do that, you a won't get the respect of a fisherman. If you haven't been out to sea, they they don't look at you. It's like okay, what do you know? You don't know anything about the conditions out there. You don't know what we're facing. You don't know what we you know safety issue. You don't know. and then we say, well, we do. So let's talk. We do know what you're talking about, and and then also at uh, with government looking at legislation and advocating for things at the other end. So those are the the three the three projects we're currently working on. But we've we've had a, a huge amount of success with the the birds going lands, for instance, in the offshore trawl fleet, where we were able to reduce. Uh, the then seabird bycatch by ninety five percent, and that in itself doesn't say much but if i put it into figures there was an estimated 10,000 between 10,000 and 15,000 birds getting killed every year by the trawl fishery in south africa that's the offshore trawl fleet and we brought that down to about 200 birds per year that's a 90 95% reduction and it was a 99% reduction in albatross mortality uh, just due to one measure of putting out these birds scaring lines so that's 10,000 birds that are getting, fewer birds that are getting killed every year just from that one measure. But it's taken us 10 years to, to get there. So it's, it's and, and it's something that needs to be sustained just because it's out there doesn't mean it's being used. So we need compliance, we need legislation, we need all of those things to go hand in hand. So we've heard about these amazing birds, we've heard about the conservation challenges, and we've heard that there are solutions that are actually bringing about results. So, you know, if people want to find out more about the Albatross Task Force, or they would like to support the work you're doing, how can they get more information? Well, I think the, the easiest way is to visit us um, at, at BirdLife, BirdLife South Africa, and go to our website. Our, our website, there's uh, the Albatross Task Force, and uh, and. Really, all our projects and all of the work that we do is based on donations, is based on, on people like yourselves being able to support, support what we do. So, so we're dependent on, on donations and, and direct money that comes to us. Some, some, most of our projects are, are funded that way. So please just visit our, uh, our website. It's birdlife.org.za, uh, Birdlife South Africa. And, uh, and you will find out about the Seabird Program and the Albatross Task Force. 
Thanks, Andrea. I really appreciate it. What I'll do is I'll put a link in the, the show notes. So if anyone's looking for this year, you can I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's been fantastic to chat to you. Uh, hopefully, we can have a project quite soon where we're going to be able to give you guys um, some uh, some funding. So the listeners, but just watch this space and we'll let you know as soon as we have more information. But it's been fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been amazing. And thank you so much, Adam. And I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to to doing things together and thank you to all the listeners for taking the time to listen to us and and please visit us please uh, come to our website and see the work we do and I'm very happy to you know be contacted if Adam you put my email out uh, address out there and I'm happy to receive any questions and, and connect with all of you thank you thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode please take some time to check out the other resources that we have on our website. If you have any questions or comments, please drop us an email on info at All relevant links from the episode can be found in the notes to the show. Until next time, be blessed and happy birding.